Welcome back, amigos. Hey, how have you been? And thanks for downloading this pop-up episode of How to Wow with the impeccably dressed fountain of knowledge that is the extraordinarily erudite Stephen Fry, the charming intellectual celebrating the humble tie through a blend of history, his own memories, first-hand anecdotes, a tie-not-tying super hacks in all part of his new book, Fry's Ties, which is out now, but first, of course... Every morning, Tash, my wife, and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity, and digestion. Deep seaweed green, like nature itself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six okay ten tops to prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous and so here's how you can get yours simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day again simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow okay and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal athletic greens have given how to wow listeners a free year's supply of vitamin d and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go once again athletic Greens.com slash don't forget how to wow. Okay, are you ready for 40 minutes of astonishing articulation from the one and only Stephen Fry? Three, two, one, let's go. Hello, Stephen. Oh, what a welcome. Thank you so much, Chris. Lovely right, now, here. what was he gassing onto you about whilst that last record was playing? This well, bl- uh, over here. We, we're talking about the book. He was kind enough to say pleasant things about it because it does, on the face of it, seem an extraordinary, indeed a preposterous idea to write a book about ties. But um, it, on one page, and this is, I suppose, typical of the book, there's uh, a tie which is playing cards. It's a beautiful silk playing card tie and and in it I mentioned that on QI I performed this unique trick that had never been performed before. I I shuffled the cards and produced an order in the pack that had never been seen in the history of playing cards. And that seems like a weird boast and how can you prove it? But the numbers are so bizarre with cards that the order of uh, of a pack of 52 cards is expressed by mathematicians as 52 with an exclamation mark next to it, sometimes called 52 shriek. And it means 52 times 51 times 50 times 49 times 48, etc. Or the other way around, 1 times 2 times 3 times 4, all the way up to 52. And that number is so huge that there is simply no possibility. You'd be more likely to drop a tray of ball bearings and for the ball bearings to spell your name out <laughs> than for anyone to, to <laughs> shuffle the pack into a position that it's yeah. been seen in before, unless they're manipulating it as a magician, of course. Anyway, that was just one of those things that is the price you pay for doing QI. See, I mean, you know, when he comes in with us, when he kicks off with a story like that, we know it's going to be fine. We could go home now. So yeah. Ask him one more question. We could nip off, do a bit of Christmas shopping back and forth. Can he still be on? <laughs> he moved on to chess. I know. The chess thing. Well, chess is similar. I I was quite keen on chess as a teenager, and um, I remember reading this book by George Steiner called The White Knights of Reykjavik, and in the first paragraph he says chess is a complex game. In fact, there are more possible games of chess 
than there are atoms in the known universe. No, that can't be true. I know, exactly. That can't be true, can it? Can it? (laughs) It seems extraordinary. But if you check it out, I mean, it's because the numbers are so vast um, with permutations of things. And actually, chess gave rise to that famous story, which I always loved, of the the emperor, you know, who who was rather bored and didn't like the games that were available. Um, He was a a shah, like the Shah of Iran, and, and he asked his viziers and wise people if they could do invent one that was fair and reasonable and took intelligence and someone came up with chess and showed him the the moves and apart from the fact that white has a minimal advantage because it always plays first it is a very fair game everything's open nothing up your sleeve etc and anyway <laughs> the, the the emperor was so pleased he he offered an, whatever reward the man wanted and he said oh it's very simple uh, all you have to do is you see there is the eight by eight checkerboard on which we play the game if you put a grain of rice on one square and then two on the next, and four on the next, and so on. That's all. And, I'll, and the emperor thought, well, I got away with that. That yeah, was easy. Bargain. Yeah, called for a sack of rice and uh, put one on and two on, and then they slowly <laughs> realised that this was not going to be as easy. And in order to fill the 64th and last square would take more rice than has ever been grown in the history no, of the planet. No! It's, it's it trillions happens, it all happens gazillions of numbers. Yes, it's called an exponential curve, and it is frightening how fast... And, of course, we, we know about exponential because of... Uh, virus. Because of the virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was with, thinking the same thing. The, the rate at which doubles. And there are more famous and benign ones. There's a thing called Moore's Law. Have you come across that? I've heard of it. It's a man called Gordon Moore who founded the um, Integrated Electronics company, Intel, and uh, the very first integrated chips, silicon chips, semiconductors, um, fitted a number of transistors. And in the early 60s, he predicted that uh, every 18 months or so, they'd be able to double the number of transistors on in, in the same space, which doesn't sound like much of a post. But again, by doubling and doubling and yeah, doubling, yeah. you come up with the computing we have now. You, you'll remember the early days in the 80s of microcomputers and, and things ZX like that. Spectrum yeah. 82. And in, in 1999, I think they built um, uh, a thing called, it began with an A, like an Altair computer. Not the Altair, that was one of the very early ones, but it began with an A, and it was the most powerful computer in the world. Mm -hmm. Three, four years later, uh, the PlayStation that was in most kids' bedrooms had the equal power. That's how, because it doubles. And and when it doubles from a high number, it's amazing what happens. And that's why it's playing havoc with our mental health, because we can't evolve as fast as we need to to keep up with with the one thing we were always master over its servant. Yes, the the amount of memory and real-time activity you can have online now is so astonishing. As you say, our brains seem... I wonder if they are, though, you know, because I think sometimes people underestimate that extraordinary thing we have between our ears. And an example I give, which still amazes me, is that if you stand in the countryside and you look around and it's pretty empty and there's a little bit of wind and somewhere in the distance there's a, a copse or a spinny of... You know, trees, and the wind turns a leaf so that the silver sh- back shines. You you catch it from ages away, and you look and you yeah. see it so quickly because we've evolved to respond to things like that. Because it could be lunch, or it could be something that thinks we're lunch. So you've got to be aware of these movements. Well, that's fine. We understand that. But two hours later, you can stand in the middle of Oxford Street with thousands of people around you in bright colours. On the phone, cars coming towards you, hopping across the street, avoiding the taxis and the buses, talking on the phone, and your brain is processing all this 
astounding amount of subsidiary noise. The same brain that saw one tiny thing and immediately focused on it is capable of blanking out. Because so often what the brain does that's brilliant is not the processing, it's, it's when it inhibits itself, when it, it closes down other things so you can concentrate on one. And then it allows you to, to shut off these amazing signals that are coming at you in so many colours and noises and speeds, and yet we cope without even thinking. We do. I mean, the only thing about the, the about the technology is the dopamine thing, because yes. and that homeostasis and all that kind of stuff. That's very true. And I think only, medicine is only really coming round to the immense importance of these endocrines. I think we, they, they, they call them, don't they? These these hormones and things, and and the, the place of the gut in producing them, which is so fascinating. Yeah. No, it? we did this, this thing about whole body yeses and whole body noes, and you've got oh. to drop into your body. And the more of your body you use, the better decision you're going to make, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, it does make sense. There's the four eyes. There's the intellect. There's instinct. Uh, there's impulsiveness, and there's intuition. And they say the best one out of those four temples to deal with is intuition because it's got a bit of your EQ, sorry, your IQ, your EQ, and your BQ, basically. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, and it's all about feeling. And you know, it's, let's go back to your book on the feeling, right? <laughs> yes. Because the point about your book is, you know. I heard you talking about it on other shows, and yeah. I read about the book, but I hadn't read the book. And I thought, this is a nice little bank raid that Fry has uh, <laughs> fr- cooked up for himself. And it's a, it's a nice route. It's a novelty book. But I, then I read it, Stephen. It's a fantastic book. It, it felt great. I'll tell you, it just, I, was, it, I was taken away with it about the attention to detail, the, I call it the, the icky guyness of the book. Mm. And, you, you know, it's, it's stunning. And it, had you have phoned it in, or even, you know, slightly better than phoned in, it wouldn't have been any good. But because you've gone all in on your, your you've nerded right down into the ties, <laughs> then I'm on board. Yeah, I think that is the, the purpose and the delight of these things, that a small... Small, insignificant thing, in many ways, that nowadays a hated thing. You know, most most people of our generation associate ties with school, male and girls wear them yeah. too. You know, in school sometimes, and 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 therefore as a symbol of something we can't wait to get rid of mm-hmm. because it's a symbol of the working world and job interviews and uh, grown-ups, forced and discipline, offices, exactly. And so you just pull it off, and you you say, "I'm never going to wear one of those again," <laughs> and th- and that's completely <laughs> understandable. But there's another way of looking at it is is the only little area of real estate that a man has in which you can sort of I mean, of course, you're allowed to wear all kinds of flamboyant things, but it's a heck of a statement. I mean, I'm wearing this tie. I'll tell you the story of it later. I've told it before, so you've probably heard it, but it's, an, it's a Versace tie. It, it's, it's so um, vibrant with colour that it doesn't clash with anything because it clashes with itself. And, um, but if I wore a jacket like that, then you'd think, well, hang on, does he think he's Elton John? What's he about to go yeah. on stage? You know, it's such a statement. He better have his number ones up his sleeve. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and if, you, if you wore it as socks, well, that's fine too, but people don't really look at each other's ankles that much. But just parked around the neck and falling down, it, it's just enough to express some pattern and, and colour and yeah. form and texture and, and then a sort of excitement with it, as well as all the other things a tie can do as sort of tokens of belonging to various 
clubs or regiments yeah, or yeah. whatever it might be. Um, so there's there's a lot going on and there's an amazing <laughs> history to them. And in, in, in my case, I yeah. suppose, what I do is I tell the story of how growing up in the country, one of the things that gave me pleasure was... You know, putting on my grandfather's old togs, including yeah, yeah. these starched shirts, collars, um, you know, separate collars on a shirt and the ties that uh, he left behind. And I would parade up and down Norwich looking like a ridiculous young fogey at the age of 14 in a suit and tie. And a young fogey, that's <laughs> funny, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, you talk about the invention of shirts in, in the book as well. And you you say, um, you know, the first renowned or, or supposed shirtier, and then you put in brackets, not a real word. It should be. Shouldn't it? Shirtier yes. is such a great... <laughs> if you make shirts, you should be a shirtier. Exactly. It's true. It's true, like a chocolatier and, a, yes. and so on. Yeah. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to know a shirt he ate. On the, on the other hand, you would say a trouserman. He's a trouserman. Once a trouserman, always a trouserman. No, trousier. A trousier? Yeah, why not? You know? <laughs> Maybe a pantalonier, yeah, but a, pant a trouserman. A pantaloonie. <laughs> um, right, so what do, what do ties matter, Jeeves? At a time like this, there is no time, sir, at which ties do not matter. Um, have they always mattered in your life? Have you, have you had a tireless year or two or something like oh, that? Oh, yes. I mean, like anyone, I'm especially... Uh, I mean, during lockdown, that was sort of weirdly the point, is because everyone was suddenly informally in sweat pants or whatever they're called these days and various <laughs> joggery-type things, unstructured, <laughs> elasticated, wasted objects around Joggery-type thing. <laughs> Joggy-aid. Joggy-aid, exactly. Um, and I was tidying out my drawers and I saw all these ties and, and I thought, well, this is... This is and, and it's a great thing to buy as a memento when you travel because... It's unique, and in different towns and cities and countries, they have different styles of shop. In Italy, they have amazing places for ties. In France and Norway, completely different as well. But also, of course, you can put it in your luggage, and it weighs almost nothing. Yeah. You can stuff it away. But if you buy books or ornaments, it's a real bore lugging yeah. them around. Yeah, yeah. So and there's that advantage. And who doesn't enjoy rolling or folding a tie? There's a reassurance in that. It's very comforting, Absolutely. isn't it? It's very meditative. Yes, Absolutely you right. Know. Absolutely right. One of the one of the ties I was most drawn to in the book was an early uh, Ralph Lauren or Polo Ralph Lauren sort of a woolly sort of knitted tie, yes. which was squared off at the end. And yeah. as a kid, I used to love those because usually my dad wore them, and they would have a sort of silk bit in the middle that went through ran under the collar yes. because 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 it, it would. And, Upset the collar too much. If yeah, it, that's right, so that. it was it would slim down. Yeah, in, yeah. Just for but that. how many of those kind of ties? Do you Quite have? a few actually, because that's how all the woolen ties and knitted silk. Right. Um, I remember reading. Um, I, I've, I, I liked the Bond movies as everyone did. My brother and I would go and see them when they came out. But then when I was about twelve, I discovered the books, and I hadn't realised what a wonderful writer Ian Fleming was. I would have, incredible gift for description yeah. and so on and just really a fine writer and um and i remember in one of them i can't <laughs> i mean there's so many uh, fabulous quotes i was just reminded one of the other day and <laughs> I, I think it's the second chapter of casino royale begins bond lit his 80th cigarette of the day wow. <laughs> just that, and and here's a, here's one that anyone who has a, has had a drinking problem or who knows someone who drinks too much will recognize exactly what fleming meant to bond the best drink of the day was always the drink he had in his head before the first drink oh, of the day. Me. Doesn't that? Yeah. Isn't that? You know that? It's that one. It's that platonic ideal of a drink that. And 
you're chasing that idea yeah, yeah. throughout the rest of the day when you slug it all down. It never quite matches. But anyway, so there are lots of brilliant things. But also Bond goes to German Street in, in St James's, you know, just off Piccadilly, it's the heart of the menswear, the fine gentleman's accessorising shops. Um, and he goes to New and Lingwood, one of the one of the best of them, and he orders a, a Sea Island cotton navy blue shirt. Uh and a, a black knitted silk tie, and he wears them. And actually, you can picture, I think Connery actually wore exactly that. It's a wonderfully... It's somewhere between a, uh, a subtle jazz man... Yeah. And, you know, it's just got a little... Hit. It's so... And I remember going, when I was there for about 14, going to New and Lingwood precisely to, to order the same thing. Yeah, because <laughs> it's not too sharp for its own good, but it's no, sharp. Exactly, yeah. yeah I like it. Just... It's good. And because it's woolly, it's a bit more playful. Yeah. You know, it's not as sort of uh, aggressive. The what, One of the ties that isn't in the book, but there's a picture of you wearing a tie, the tie that's not in the book, is your uh, University Challenge tie. Yeah, uh, yes, no, I've got, I brought that along but, with but me. But it's not in the book, is it? Because there's a picture of you wearing it. In the, is that enough, I suppose? I think, that, I think there is, yeah, because it's actually under a rather splendid story. It's a very embarrassing thing to admit to, but this tie is actually, it's not my college tie, it's the tie of a club within the college right. called the Cherubs, which is a drinking club. And and when I was elected to the Cherubs, it was only a male college. But in my last year, it went female. And I, I, I was visiting there the other day, and I was very pleased to discover the women have got a similar club, which has got the brilliant name of the Valkyries. Okay. So there's the Valkyries. Don't mess with the Valkyries. And, don't, and, and in the Cherubs, one of the initiation ceremonies was to drink an enormous amount out of some silver chalice that was hundreds of years old. And you had to <laughs> promise how you would honour the cherubs and, and the tie that you were being given right. to prove your membership of this club. <clears throat> and I said, rather grandly, I'm going to wear it on television. And everyone looked at me, but I knew I was because I'd just been picked for the college's university challenge team, right. so I wore it for that. But the guy next to me, he was a splendid fellow, and I, I hadn't met him before. He was a little older than me, uh, a graduate, and he said, oh, I'm going to take this cherub's tie where where cherubs live, and this is where it needs to be, up in the heavens. And we looked at him and thought, what's he talking about? And it turned out that this guy, right, whose name was Mike, he was, in the vacations, he was doing fast jet training with the RAF. He was learning, teaching himself Russian, and his postgraduate work was in astrophysics. He was planning to be an astronaut, right. and he became an astronaut, Mike Fold. And, and to this day... He has the British record for the number of days in space, 372 days in space, whatever. So he completely blew the rest of us away with his boast about... Well, not, wasn't a boast. It was modestly stated uh, that he would take his tie. So he did on his first launch. That's one way to launch. set your intentions, isn't it? Because, I mean, that is, live, that is manifestation. Yeah, and exactly. That is someone who... Uh, uh, you know, I mean, there, there are two ways, I suppose, in, in, in young life, aren't there? There's to know exactly <laughs> what you want and to fix on it... As he did. Yeah. He knew precisely yeah, yeah. and he did everything. Or there is, you know, the other way, which is never to know every time you wake up in the morning who you are, what you are and what you're going to do. Yeah. The French existentialist way of doing it, I yeah, suppose yeah, yeah. you could call it. Oscar Wilde said that those who know what they want to be in life will in, uh, grocer, general, you know, politician, soldier, whatever it might be, will invariably become it. That is their punishment. Yeah. But those who live what he called the artistic life or the dynamic life, they have no idea what they're going to be from one day to the next almost, and that is their reward. 
But of course, it's a harder life to lead. Yeah, of course it is, <laughs> and it's very hard on others. Well, the, you know, the bigger the roller coaster, the sicker you feel from time to time. Um, yeah, very so, well put. So, to cravat or not to cravat, or when to, right? Yeah. If you are going to cravat ever, you need to cravat like it's either 1999 or page 220 of Stephen's book, because that is the best cravat I've ever seen. I would wear that for the rest of it my is life. Glorious, isn't it? It's the way it's the color. It's the way it's it's nestling down within the collar, the color and the collar, but it's also the pattern it's beautiful yeah it is lovely and and that's one of the wonderful things is to celebrate in britain there is a marvelous silk silk weaving industry using jacquard looms and old style ways it comes all the way back from our wave of immigrants that we had in the um, 17th century mostly um the the huguenots who came to spitalfields and had this they were the french protestants who were who were kicked out because it's obviously france was catholic and didn't like protestants and so they they came over here for, for, for shelter and refuge and they brought with them their amazing skills in, in weaving. And then a lot of them moved out to Suffolk and to various other parts as new waves of Jewish and that now, of course, uh, um, you know, Islamic and various other. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful thing about uh, uh, the same buildings in, in Spitalfields can, be, can have been a, 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 a chapel, a synagogue and a mosque. And, and, and it's, uh, that's its history. Anyway, the, the weaving, the, the, the history of British weaving is a, is, is a wonderful one. And it's beautiful what you can do and of course it's connected to computing I, i've never i've never bow tied ever um no. there are there are t- sort of mini um micro tie tying tie master classes in here. yes yeah um, i was always a half windsor guy uh, the full windsor was just a bit too scary for me but looking at your beautifully simple diagram i should have gone for it well no. it's it's worth it yep um i mean, either the full or the half uh, and there are various other well, what is ones. your what is your go-to not is that a half this is a half winter, yeah because it's yeah. got the slightly wonky halves they just they, are they are and this particular tie is so patterned it's got a little red bit at the top and i wanted to make the, the knot red which i think i succeeded in doing. you did so you had to sort of get like the... matching your flock <laughs> wallpaper <laughs> Although, uh, <laughs> to return to Ian Fleming, there is a phrase in one of the books again, which is that Bond never trusted anybody who wore a Windsor knot or suede shoes. And no reason why, just because. <laughs> just, just because. Yeah, um, maybe too much time on the hands, who would know? <laughs> and creeping about in those suede shoes. Right, I've, I've, I've um, dog-eared loads of these. Uh, the, your Paul Smith tie, and you talk about Paul Smith so fondly in the mm. first Paul Smith shop, oh, which I went to a lot, you know... Um, Paul Smith, just wonderful. I had it, yes. I'm so embarrassed about this, and I'm not saying this in order... It, it sounds like a, a, a humble brag or something, but I, I went regularly to the Paul Smith, so regularly, um, that eventually the manager said, uh, oh, w- w- here's this card, it'll give you a... Um, discount. You know, 20% yeah, discount I got or the something. Same card. And so I never <laughs> went back in again because I was too embarrassed to use it. I thought it was shameful. I mean, it is... And I'm not trying to present myself as a saint, but... You know, unto him that hath shall be given I more know, and more, unto always. them that hath not shall be taken more and more. It's so unfair. And the last thing I needed was, you know, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be able to pay the full price. It's full whack. So it had a reverse effect, really. I just stopped going in. Have you met I, him? Have you told him that? I, I have, yeah. And he, he grinned and said I was not the only one. And uh, he'd be, he'd be, I'd be very welcome to go in and pay the full price, or more if I chose. <laughs> Did you ever see that Paul Smith 
taxi that's around. Oh, yes, 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 gorgeous. Yeah, is there just with one the, or are there a the few stripes? of those? It, there are a few, and I've actually got a bag that's uh, got um, a mini with those stripes in, in, yeah, in, in the wood. Yeah, they're great, those, are really good, yeah. And um, how are you with your taxis nowadays? Because you had one for a while. I had one for many, many years, right. yeah, for 25 years so at least. Cab. It was a black cab, right. um, and I loved going around, and it was fantastic. And in the early days, it was quite straightforward. I was filming the Jeeves and Worcester series that I did with Hugh Laurie, but so it was back in the late 80s and um, when I first bought one, and I, I remember one day I drove it to the location or the set, and um, uh, when I got back after the day shooting, the prop department very sweetly had made up a plaque on the back, and in the old days it used to say... Um, uh, licensed to carry five passengers and then a number and then underneath it would it would say uh, Metropolitan Police because they they used to look after the taxi uh, department in those days. It's now TFL, of course. And um, <laughs> so they made up one and it said, not licensed to carry any passengers in small letters. And then the number, which was my birth date, and underneath it, Neapolitan Police. <laughs> but you had to look very closely to spot that it was fake. And that worked well for many, many years and I would park in taxi ranks and... And in other places like that, very naughtily. Um, and then one day, uh, I got a, I got in it, and there was a note on the seat, and it was locked, and I had an alarm and everything, because it was the days when people were all stealing, you know, stereos out of cars, and it was from the from the police, from the special branch, and and they had said that we have searched this car, and of course I realised that there had been a terrible bomb in Ealing, with, oh, which apparently no. had used the IRA had used a black. Right. And they saw this black cab and they obviously saw it and they got very suspicious. But they then tracked it back to me and said I had to five days to get rid of the white plaque. So, so what did you do? How long did the taxi survive the, the white plaque's uh, demise? Well, I just got rid of it. and the whole thing? Uh, oh, right, yeah, the whole thing. yeah, I put a blank white plaque on so rather than just having right, nothing. Right. Um, and then, of course, the the, tr the congestion fee came in. So I obviously could no longer really use the... Taxi lanes, which was the great advantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like when when the Olympics was on, we we were given um, Olympic lane passes, weren't we, for a while? That was awesome. That was oh, a pretty good couple of weeks, let me tell you. Wow. <laughs> Larging it to the Olympics, straight stadium. in down the A40 and <laughs> the fast lane. Yeah, do you know what? I got three speeding fines. <laughs> Really? Yeah, yeah, because I wasn't used to being able to go that... I was only going like 55, but always, you usually go like 17 miles an hour just for, on the Brompton Road because it's 30 miles an hour, but it's dual carriageway. Anyway. That's right. For those who don't remember, it was the special lanes with the Olympic rings yeah. painted on them, weren't they? Yeah, and then they burn them off and yeah. there's potholes now wherever they are. It's, it's, and they're irreparable. There's a legacy. There is. <laughs> An arm and a legacy. Um, so... This is a very beautiful tie, the flowered tie. I like that one, and I was terribly surprised when I turned it over and saw that it was Bowden, because Bowden is a, mostly a mail catalogue thing, I think, or what used to be called mail catalogue, and these days is an online catalogue, I suppose. I think they still send it through the post. And it's con sort of associated with rather kind of home counties, uh, Oxford sort of, almost the Red Trouser Brigade, you know. And But that tie is just lovely gold with the simple flowers on it. It's, uh... Put me in mind of Hockney. And then I started yes. thinking about the Mutual Rothschild wine labels, where they commission an artist yeah. to, 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 to design every one. Yeah, yeah um, and I would love, you know, I mean, you know David Hockney. Mm, um, lucky have you ever it. had a tie conversation with him? Maybe would it, I mean, can you imagine a Hockney tie? That would be That'd sensational. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Funnily enough, a friend of mine was a 
painter called Craigie Aitchison, who's a wonderful painter, a Scottish painter, famous for these wonderful, flat, beautifully coloured, elegant paintings that nearly always featured, rather weirdly, a Bedlington terrier in them somewhere and a sun and a moon, a very, very particular style. And he painted a tie for the Royal Academy, which is absolutely sensational. I managed to find one. I lost mine. Um, and they're kind of like Egyptian hieroglyph... Hier hieroglyph type things but quite hard to dis to describe them but they're that you can occasionally see one on ebay they're very very lovely but yes uh, <laughs> i i was lucky enough to be on david hockney's um email list when he started uh painting with the ipads yeah, you know, with, with remember, uh, digital yeah. tablets and he would send me his work and it was really weird to be getting an original hockney through email and but of course infinitely reproducible um and he was very cross with me because i'd given up smoking yeah. Um, so this is about 15 years ago when I gave up smoking, I guess. And um, he is a is a resolute he's, smoker. He's an enthusiastic yes. smoker. And uh, yeah, when people tell him not to smoke, he says, "Oh, don't be dreary." <laughs> That's his word, dreary, because he sounds like Alan Bennett because they come from the same, yeah, same so part similar. of the world. Yeah. And uh, he's and he 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 drew me a special one of a full ashtray, a beautiful, beautiful hockney of a full ashtray uh, with a and he'd written in handwritten underneath. And this is what you're missing. And actually, a full <laughs> ashtray didn't make me feel particularly sorrowful. That but I was... we've never been able to interview him because he's he said yes to interviews, but he won't do an interview where he can't smoke. And back at the Beeman in here, you, can't, right. you, you he, he just won't do it because he smokes from the minute yeah. he gets up to the minute he goes to bed. He, he does, and he's an unfortunate uh, as far as anti-smokers are concerned he's, because he seems he's to one be of the rather, best rather healthy. He's like the 115-year-old woman in France yes. that everybody talks about all the time. He just the drinks... one who knew Van Gogh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. True story. Yes, and, and Tom Stoppard still smokes uh, all the time. He's as well. a, but also, Hockney is a big tie guy. You know, he yes, he often he, he often cardigans and ties. Absolutely. Have you had right. a tie conversation with no, him? No, I should have done. I really should. He's a wonderful dresser, isn't he? And he invented a certain kind of look. There's a great story about him, um, which I. I heard and I asked him if it was true and he said it was. When he was very young and he was a promising artist, Faber and Faber, the publishers who published, well, T.S. Eliot, um, and T.S. Eliot was on the board of Faber and Faber, and, and Ted Hughes and W.H. Auden, the great poets of the day, really, and they were bringing out new editions of W.H. Auden. Now, I don't know if you know what W.H. Auden looked like towards the end of his life. He looked like sort of Chief Joseph or one of those uh, uh, you know old Native American figures with really lined face, deep trenches everywhere, really, yeah. really lined. Um, anyway, David Hockney was invited to this party in Bloomsbury to meet W.H. Auden so that he could draw him for the covers, which he did, and they were brilliant. But he'd never seen him before, of course. He'd heard of him. He was a famous poet. and He, he came into the party and someone said, that's, that's Whiston over there. W.H. Auden's name was Whiston. Uh, and Hockney looked at him and said, blimey, if that's his face, what can his scrotum look like? <laughs> Maybe it's the opposite. <laughs> well, <laughs> who knows? It's a portrait in the basement, not the attic. Oh, very good. Who that's knows? very possible. Who knows? Um, we've got a talk about the MCC uh, tie. Yes. Uh, just, just give people a little sort of um, bluffer's guide to, to the MCC and the tie and when was the first time you wore it. Because it it's a design classic. It's a beautiful tie. It's known as the bacon and egg. Uh, uh, it's a, it's a, it, the bacon is pretty unfair because it's kind of wonderful dark orange, a burnt orange it's and, a and a yellow. It's a lovely tie, striped tie. The Marylebone Cricket Club is the place that runs Lord's Cricket Ground and for, for 200 or so years used to run cricket around the world. It's still 
you're responsible for formulating the laws of cricket um, and, you know, you know, how a grounded catch is defined and all, you know, the, the intricacies. Uh, but obviously it doesn't govern world cricket anymore. But it's a club and uh, it has, a, at the moment, I believe, a 29-year waiting yeah, list. Yeah. It's absurd. Um, but it allows you into the extraordinary grounds, if you're a cricket fan, and to see matches and so on. And people are very pleased to be it. And I actually, a few, a month or so ago, was... Uh, utterly stunned to see in my inbox an email from Kumar Sankakara, who's one of the greatest cricketers who's ever lived, a left-handed batsman, and he was uh, president, the, the, the first non, non, non-white, I think, non-British, certainly, uh, president of the uh, MCC, and a superb one too, and he was writing to ask me to deliver what is known as the MCC Cowdery Lecture on the Spirit of Cricket, which has been going for many years. It's never been asked, no other... Non-cricketer, non-cricketer, except Desmond Tutu, who's ever been asked to do it. So I, I heard he played a bit in his day. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was around the time, obviously, that South Africa was emerging as one of the... Again, after um, Mandela came, uh, was free, and, and, yeah. and it became a, a democratic country and welcomed back into the world, including in cricket and sport generally. So he had a lot to say, obviously, about racism and so on. And I was preparing my lecture when this terrible stink arose in Yorkshire about the racism that racism that had been experienced by Azim Rafiq and, and, and others. And, and so I suddenly thought, my God, here's this big, fat, white, middle-class Englishman presuming to lecture on the, on the spirit of cricket. And indeed, it turned out it was on the very day that Azim was giving his evidence to the select committee in the House of Parliament. So, but fortunately, my lecture was on the, the way cricket has changed over the years. And I used to go as a boy. And, when, you know, in 1962, uh, it, it seems extraordinary, but, uh, uh, and indeed... In, I think into 63, they still had a division between amateurs and professionals. And the amateurs were known as the gentlemen. And the professionals were known as players. And every year there was a gentlemen versus players match. And and in the England team, though the captain would always be a gentleman. So, and so the last one was A.R. Lewis, Tony Lewis, the, the, the great, great Welsh cricketer and a great man. And so he his name on the match card would say Mr. A.R. Lewis. And, but at the bottom, where the bowler, say, who was a professional, it would say Truman, FS, for Fred Truman. Not Mr. He didn't get it. And, and when they travelled on, on, uh, abroad on, on Ashes tours or wherever, uh, they went in different classes. I mean, it was unspeakable. And that was in my lifetime. That was around the time the Beatles first went to Abbey yeah, Road. You know, just, So all that changed. And then, you know, other things changed. And, and, and amazing changes that were always met with resistance. And they didn't use the word woke there, but it was always, oh, there's this trendy nonsense about um, having women in the game. Or what's all this one day? That, what are all these colours? And why are they, you know, what are the lit up bales? It looks like a gay disco. You know, they were just everybody, every Everything is always in cricket, as in so much in this country. Is any change is met with the kind of, oh, it's just nonsense, you know. And and then we accept it. I, I can remember around the same time that cricket was changing at its most, people were saying women should get paid the same as men for the same work. And, you know, half the country, or in terms of its political party, voted against it in Parliament as if this was a, a terrible idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seemed to us now, you're going, what? So who... Someone might still be alive who voted no to equal pay for women in the 70s. It seems extraordinary. And I 
benefited from that kind of progress. I'm not wanting to get on a woke soapbox exactly, but, you know, I'm a married man. I'm a gay man who married the man he loves. And, and that was inconceivable when I was growing up and parading myself in ties. Maybe the ties <laughs> were a kind of defence against the knowledge I had that my life would be one of shame and exile and skulking and not, you know, not being my proper self, as it were, um, because I never predicted that the world would get better. Yeah. And then there's a lot wrong with the world, of course there is, but it does get better. Yeah, there's a lot wrong with the world, but there's a lot more right with the world yeah. than we thought was possible, maybe, yeah. within our and lifetime. And I'm, I'm fed up with some members of my own generation moaning about not being able to say anything. So what? Do you want to say? Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, what, yeah. What, what is it that you're prevented from saying? Tell me. Yeah. And, and they never can, of course. They just sort of want to growl and grumble in a sort of grumpy old man way. Your detail, you know, your attention to detail, your eye for detail, your ear for detail, your heart and your brain for detail is, is fantastic. But I think the reason you tell such good stories and remember things so well is because, because you take notice of the detail, things are more memorable. Yeah, I and, think that may be true. And, yes. it, and it's a nice, it's a more pleasant journey, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's it means you're never bored. Yeah, because you know, if I'm a bit of a, a bit of a sort of mania for for being on time. So I'm always early. You were so early here today. I was early here today. <laughs> I was, yeah. And you so, shown around the seventeenth floor. You were so <laughs> early. Indeed, and wonderful it was. So I often have to sit in cafes or in you know, but. I, that's where you look at people, and yeah. and and my favourite writers have that same ability. I mean, I've just been rereading a lot of John Le Carre because he died, and it yeah. just reminded me of how much I liked him. And I remember in the Looking Glass War, one of his early, one of his early spy novels, there's a character who punches his arm out to the left and sweeps it to look at his watch as if to say he had knocked around the world a bit. <laughs> and it's just such a perfect <laughs> observation, you know, the way someone would just... But it's so playful just, as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, just do that. And it does say I've knocked around the world a bit. Yeah, and it's yeah. playful. It's it's kind of good observational comedy. And you yeah, get yeah. a huge amount of but that. But it's also so... I mean, you know, pithiness is a, is a sign of intelligence, isn't it, when you do all the heavy lifting for your reader or for your listener where you're yeah. concerned. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. And it is in the details. I remember Nabokov, the, the, the Russian-American novelist, uh, just picking out a piece of Dickens where, um, uh, because of Dickens' ability to, to find details where no-one else would. And um, uh, Pip, I think it is in Great Expectation, he tips someone who's carried his luggage and he flicks him a coin and the man catches it with an overhand wrist and, and gives a nod. And you... You're instantly there. I'd never heard the phrase catching a coin with an overhand wrist, but you know what that means. Yeah, of it's a, you do. that little snatch uh, that isn't the usual way of you know letting it land in the palm. And it, it just for a second, this figure is alive. And and Nebukov said that is you know part of that genius. And I, it's what I love in in the best writers is they've they've just seen things for you and they make them make them they bring them alive. They, yeah, you. It's like what Oscar Wilde said when when he famously remarked that nature imitates art. Not art imitating nature, but nature imitates art. And people said, oh, he's just being clever and putting things backwards again. But his point was is that once, say, once Turner had looked at a sunset in a particular way, he made us see the sunset in a different way. Mm. So in a sense, nature was, when we looked at the window, nature was now imitating Turner. We'd never seen before what yeah, Turner yeah. saw in a sunset. Yeah. But as soon as he saw it, we saw it too. And, and that's a marvellous thing that happens, I think, with, with the best artists. All right, we haven't got long left. Um, yeah. uh, Wild versus Dickens. 
World title fight. Oh, goodness, yeah. One, they're allowed one paragraph each, nine, ten lines. That's it. <laughs> I mean, I think Wilde would be a finer companion. I mean, I admire Dickens enormously. It is, I'll just quickly put this point in, more theatres were built in London in the 19th century than it had ever been built in the world anywhere at any other time. And yet, there's only one play we remember from that huge Victorian reign, which is The Importance of Being Earnest. The rest are nearly all just melodramas and nothing like as good. And I think it was Terry Eagleton or someone like that who pointed out that, in fact, that's because the dramatic energy of the of the British, which had expressed itself as Shakespeare in the great period of the 1580s and 90s and so on, um, and it, it, it was turned into the novel, and the novel became the drama form, and Dickens, in a sense, is a dramatist like Wilde. Okay, so the winner is. Uh, it's, uh, as I'm in, as I'm in the borough, it, virtually, in, which is his his manner. I'd better say Dickens. Okay, is, but because yeah, Dickens had created complete worlds that you can revisit yeah. and revisit. Wilde was a, more of an intellectual hero, more of a a kind of a, a crown prince of Bohemia. But if you if you write if you read the first page of uh, Picture of Dorian Gray or the first page mm. of. Um, uh, Christmas Carol. You you are taken away with the magnificence right. of the paragraphs. Yeah. You go, I've got to have a rest after this one. I just need to let that paragraph soak in because it's so good, isn't it? You're it's right. ridiculous. It's Blissful. ridiculous how good it is. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, before you go, uh, fries ties. It's a read, everyone. It is a cracking read. It's beautiful. <laughs> I think I find it really meditative. I find it really calming, really reassuring. Uh, I, I was fascinated by your enthusiasm for your ties. You know, desert island ties is what it could be called as well. <laughs> Um, we are hoping for another one. We're hoping for fries cries. Your, your best cries and your worst cries. We're hoping for fries pies. Pies. Now yeah? there, yeah. Any chance, please, Stephen? Pies, I could certainly... <laughs> that would be fun to dedicate myself for a year in mastering... Yeah, I would the, be... The pictures would be better than the cries. Yes. You just have to go back to recreate all the cries. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Anything else? Fries dies? No. Fr we don't fries? Want fri no. Dies. Definitely. We don't want fries dies. Um, sorry, I've sort of I've monopolised the conversation. Uh, anything you want to add, Vass? Well, I have one question. Get you were one. talking about things that are wrong with the world, and I have another one here, and it's practically the first tie you talk about, and this beautiful um, tie of ancient Greece, mm. which you say it's sadly unworn. Yes. What? By the way, he's the, Greek, just so you know. I, the, but the author of Mythos and Troy and Heroes hasn't worn this beautiful, albeit black and white, tie of ancient Greek mythology. It's a, from the frieze from the Parthenon, the, and it represents the Panathenaic Games. The, and I have this yeah, passion... Yeah, you idiot. That, no, I have this passion that, that, uh, that we will return the Parthenon marbles to Athens and I will wear the tie at the ceremony in which the, 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 the friezes get installed at the new Acropolis Museum in Athens, where they belong. And I'm really keen on this, and I know a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, we've looked after them. And it's certainly true we've looked after them, but it will be such a classy act. And the technology now, and of course, it's been done before with them. There's another set in Scotland where Lord Elgin lived, who the chap who brought them here, uh, because you can cast them. And now, with laser refinement, you can cast them so exactly. So the British Museum would have a Parthenon experience. Yeah. You go in, you see this fabulous technology using AR helmets or whatever you want to you know, wear. Not helmets, but, you know. Yeah. And um, you see how the originals were perfectly reproduced and put in place, and then you watch the 
you watch them being packed up and put on a train and you have this wonderful kind of 3D panoramic experience of them riding through France and across Italy and down through the Baltics and into, uh, not the Baltics, the Balkans, and then into Greece. And then <clears throat> where they would be welcome, where the, I promise you a million Athenians would come onto the street to welcome. They mean so much to the Greeks. They, they are part of the nature it's of It's an what open Athens goal, is. isn't it? We it should... is. And there would be a handshake ceremony and, you know, Boris or whoever was prime minister. Boris is the man. Suddenly there would be, you know, people would for once look at Britain and say, that was a classy oh, act. He, he could do it in fluent ancient Greek. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. But the well, word we'll is see. classy. It would be a classy, classy thing. And Britain hasn't done a classy thing in both classy and classy, time. wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Um, so that's my plan. Then I will wear that tie right. on that occasion. Good answer. Happy with that? <laughs> yeah, very happy with that. All right, Stephen. You, you're a dream guest. You're a dream human being. Uh, we oh, love you. And uh, happy Christmas. Thank you. Okay. Happy Christmas this to you. This is a great and your book. Listeners. Cheers. Thank you very much. Stephen Fry Fry's Ties The Life and Times of a Tie Collection. All right. Here we go. Well, there we go. We're done. How great is Stephen Fry? I mean, just how great is Stephen Fry? A world in the history of Stephen Fry's personal collection and fondness for ties, plus much more, as you heard there. If you liked it, don't forget to rate and review this episode, and why not dive into the How To Wow archives for more wisdom from the likes of Ron Howard, Dame Judi Dench, and Dave Grohl, to name just three. Cheerio.